Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Sanctum Socorum Live. Tonight, we're exploring the Weird West, so strap on your shooting irons, don your 10-gallon hats. We are going to be speaking to a new voice in the genre, and we hope his work will inspire you. Of course, before we dive in, allow me to introduce my co-hosts, the other Keepers of Mysteries. We have Keeper Jen. Good evening. And we have Keeper Mark. Howdy, y'all. Okay, you're allowed, because you're actually in Texas, so, so yeah, that works. <laughs> And of course, tonight we are joined by author Zachary Rosenberg, author of Hungers As Old As This Land. This debut novella is currently Amazon's number one new release in Western horror fiction. And uh, he's got further projects down the road, like The Long Shalom, due out in June. More coming. As a horror writer living in Florida, he crafts horrifying tales by night and by day he practices law, which... In Florida is probably even more frightening. Zach, welcome to the Sanctum Sanctorum. Thank you so much for having me, Bob, Jen, Mark. It's really a pleasure to be here. It and is. Just before anyone starts thinking, oh, so uh, one of Bob and Jen's gaming buddies. No, um, I, I don't believe we've ever actually met Zach. This is My the first time we've actually seen his face. <laughs> Bob has been extremely kind and supportive. I'm honestly, I'm just very grateful for. Uh, all the kind words and all the support and just it's it's really great to be here well we are we are definitely glad to have you here um uh, well i i let our folks know a little bit about this book here hungers as old as this land uh, it deals with the settlement of gray's bluffs a prosperous town an independent community dwelling in the shadows of the mountains known only as the hungers esther foxman and siobhan o'clary have grown up in gray's bluff thriving out in the Western territories in the aftermath of the Civil War. Devoted to one another and their home, the two set out to complete a regular pact at the Hungers to ensure that Graves Bluffs continues to prosper. Cyril Redstone is a man who knows death well. Becoming a mercenary after the Civil War, Cyril leads the marauding Blackhawks from one slaughter to the next. Hired to destroy Graves Bluffs, Cyril cares little for morality, nor that he owes its founder his life. Esther and Chauvin are left to defend the only home they have ever known from the Blackhawks, their confrontation driving them deep into the mountains where the darkest secrets of the hungers await them. Oh yeah, I've, I've got to say, Zach, right off the bat, I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Uh, Thank you so much. That really does a lot. Yeah. It is... Uh, how would you describe it in like two sentences or less is what I'm curious. Ooh, how would I describe this in two sentences or less? Um, an innocent town is threatened. Uh, the defenders might need to rely on the monsters nearby in the mountains to help us uh, save it. Okay. I, I was curious if we were going to lean on the uh, religious overtones on that. Yes. Um, yeah, it is a Jewish horror Western. You don't see too many of those. I think there's only one other example that I really know of uh, out there right now. So, um, you know, I could be wrong. There's, prob there's probably others out there. But that was, uh, that was something very important for me to uh, be writing when I, when I started this. It's fascinating. <laughs> I, I was kind of curious if there were, if there were uh, examples of, of Jewish genre fiction that had, had sort of inspired you and caught your attention as you were moving forward as you started writing? Because I admit I have not seen a lot either. 
You know, um, it's an interesting question. I've done a lot of research on that as far as, you know, looking at Jewish horror and looking at the history of it and how much of it, uh, you know, th there, there wasn't one specific thing that really inspired Hungers as a work. It was more of a culmination of a bunch of different Jewish um, horror works, a bunch of different weird West horror works, a bunch of stuff all over the place, honestly. Um, one that I would think that uh, was kind of an inspiration was the 2018 movie, The Golem, which um, kind of, you know, it's very different settings. That one's set in a shtetl in Eastern Europe, but the idea of the town under threat kind of uh, originated there a little. Um, the, um, the only other Jewish horror Western that I, I'm aware of off the top of my head is uh, Edward Erdelak's uh, Merkaba Rider, which is about a Hasidic Jewish gunslinger who fights the forces of evil. But it's very different in tone and folklore. Um, it was something I had more heard about. I hadn't actually read it by the time I had started Hungers. Um, so really, I can't say there was any like one specific thing. Um, Jewish horror is unfortunately like a little few and far between when it comes to explicitly Jewish works. And it's even rarer to find stuff like actually done by Jewish people. Um so yeah, really, it, it's a really just a fascinating history. Like it really starts back at like, you know, folklore and then the late 19th century with um, plays like the Dybbuk and the Golem. And some of those were made into, you know, early films and the silent era and a little after. And then really it's not a whole lot um, there. You have certain Jewish writers yeah. doing themes, uh, you know, like Jewish themes and stuff along the way, but there's, very it's like very few and far between that actually deal with like actual jewish folklore if like for a long time and this is understandably so it's really all you know jewish horror is basically all nazis like you know it's all uh it's all nazis it's all the the resurgent third reich it's you know escape nazi war criminals or nazi ghosts um it's really only recently i think that it's really started to you know the folklore has really made such a comeback really in the last few years and that's thanks to people like john baltusberger is amazing is an amazing guy he's got his own jewish horror western uh coming out before too long um <laughs> the vigil in 2019 was a real you know game changer for that that was like one of the very first unapologetically jewish horror uh movies to really do super well and to be like a really jewish story with jewish director um and actors and folklore and that was something i think that really kicked it all like that that really kicked it all off it's still you know still rare but that's where it is yeah i, I was kind of curious because you mentioned like the dybbuk and the golem this seems to be outside of the traditional jewish folklore mythology and i was kind of wondering like whether that was intentional or if it was you know just that you wanted to place this in 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 a different setting than had been done with kind of popular, more popular Jewish media. Yeah, actually, um, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, when you do get that folklore, it's usually just Dybbuk's and Golem's. Um, right. that those are the two most famous ones. Um, it really was a deliberate choice. I didn't, um, I, I wanted to tell a monster story. I want to tell something that was like linked to, you know, the history of America and manifest destiny and, you know, the, uh, the bloody history of the West. Um, well, alongside dealing with uh, the you know the history of Jews in the West as well, um, so really I wanted to get the idea of like let's do um, I love monsters, so let's get original monsters in there, something um, something of my own creation, something to kind of go along with those themes, but without a real um, direct tie in folklore, because there wouldn't be much in Jewish folklore that you would be able to find in the rural mountains of you know Montana territory at the time, and I didn't want to. Um, use indigenous folklore because i didn't feel that was like you know my story to tell at the time um you know you have a bunch of people who i think just kind of take that and use it half-handedly and they're you know it kind of crowds out indigenous writers trying to do that so i said very early on you know that's a lot of stuff that's already been done um that's not really what i should be doing if i'm looking to focus on the jewish aspect so um i figured like let's create an original monster with that and a lot of some of my other works i like um going with more varied things in folklore because there's really a ton of it yeah I, I would say the uh whatever it is that lurks in the hungers first of all it i think it automatically feels familiar in that in that there's so many different types of, of folklore worldwide that have and I, i'm not going to say the the same thing but you know there's there's sort of the the things in the darkness that you can make deals with 
uh, and woe be to you if you break those deals. Right. Uh, so, so there's kind of a familiarity there. And in a, in a lot of ways, I felt that uh, because they're so ancient, you know, they've been there so long, it almost, it almost felt a little bit Lovecraftian, like the, like the Chochos, right, up on the right. of Lang. There's sort of that, that feeling of timelessness and, and just something off-putting. And, and in this case, you don't even really, you know, there, there's not like, you know, giant revelatory scenes where these things are like in broad daylight to, to, uh, to read about. So there's, I think that's even better. Yeah, no, there's this, this great sense of mystery with them. Yeah, that that's really what I wanted to get across. Like, uh, I wanted to give um, windows where you could see that these are not just animals or not just mindless beasts. They have their own society and their own own codes that you only really see a little fraction of, honestly, that um, you only get to see um, very like little select pieces. There's one scene, you don't have to spoil anything where um, one guy gets out of sorts and, you know, one of the creatures from The Hungers kind of corrects him in a sense. Um, I kind of left, I think, enough where you could kind of imply that the creature was keeping tabs on him in hopes he would give it an excuse to go by the letter of the deal, if not the spirit. Because, like, hey, you know what? Um, You're thinking of it as a person. It's been guarding these women probably all day. It's probably stressed out at having to keep uh, clear of everyone. It's probably tired. It's probably hungry. Like, let's hope, like, like it's hoping it can grab a quick snack, uh, you know, with some, uh, <laughs> with some guy who might not, might not be sympathetic. But, uh, you know, the whole thing is, you know, the hungers are, they've been there forever. Um, the, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer of the more unknown you keep something, the scarier it is, the, you know, the less you see it. Um, so I really wanted to use them very sparingly. Um, you know, uh, the Lovecraftian sense, uh, something like the lurking fear where, you know, you have the monsters just out of sight where there are these hidden, you know, abominations. Um, one of my big, one of my biggest, um, two of my big inspirations, uh, one, the movie Ravenous, which I love with Guy Pierce and Robert Carlyle. Um, which, you know, does more with human monsters and kind of blends it with, uh, you know, the myth and the folklore versus, you know, meets manifest destiny and capitalism. There's another one that I think is a little underrated. I, I wouldn't call it a great movie, but I'm a little fond of it called The Burrowers with um, Clancy Brown and I, I forget who else. But like the idea is there are these monsters who live out in the plains and they usually feed on the buffalo. And the idea is manifest destiny has, you know, they've been killing all the buffalo. So these things have now run out of their food supply and they start preying on humans. And it's, I really think they're like some pretty cool, gnarly, creepy monsters that have like this really, really terrifying, you know, MO. So that, that was actually an inspiration that I really had when I was, I was doing this. Like the idea of these are things that have been there. Like this country is old. These it's much older than the, the, the colonialism. You think you can tame it. You think you can control it, but there's always going to be stuff out there that you just cannot bend to your will. I like it. And another thing about it, I haven't seen burrowers in a couple of years, but you're right. That is a horribly underrated movie. Yes. It's a lot of fun. That is really good. I, and I, I really, I, I think something else that's kind of, kind of important to the story is while, well, you certainly, you know, you have the monster aspect, right? We, there's, there, there's the hungers, but they're, they're really no more terrifying than Cyril Redstone yes. and, and, and his folks. I mean, there's, which is, which is sadly very realistic to the old West to begin yes. with. Uh, the mercenaries. Uh, the- the mercenaries, uh, former military mercenaries, yeah. Well, and and as as the gaming com- community was just reminded that the Pinkertons still exist. <laughs> yep. um, I was hoping yeah. not to go there. <laughs> uh, so so it is it is a real interesting combination where you've got these these monsters that are definitely creepy, but they're not the most terrifying part of the story, and it makes for a real interesting ride. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. That that was really a deliberate choice on my end. Um, you have mon- like you know the idea of monsters out in you know out in the mountains. It, it's like you know, it, could it could it be real? You know, it might it might not be. Probably not. Um, you know, I think everyone knows that's the fantasy part of it. That's the part where 
when you're going into horror um, in a sense where it's like the supernatural or the creature feature, you're going in with an intent for the author to show you their imagination, to make something up, to, you know, something that may or may not be plausible, but you know it's it's not real. It's like, you know, you're saying thrill me and scare me that way. But the human monsters, the people, um, you know, the people like Cyril, I think, you know, they that is someone who could realistically exist and people who did exist, people who are hired to murder unionizers and to kill innocent villagers, you know, and those people and people like that have been around for thousands of years and they're still around. Um, and it's a little terrifying is, to realize that you can't escape them as easily yeah. as these supernatural or beings that we, you can make a deal with the hunk. Yeah. You can't yeah. make a deal with Cyril. Right. And the thing yeah, I don't is, like that at all. <laughs> <laughs> the thing the thing I think is interesting about that was when it comes to someone like Cyril, it's because he's a hireling for the wealthy and powerful. Because, you know, if you're a citizen of Gray's Bluffs, you can make that deal with the Hungers and you keep that pack renewed. It might scare you, but you cannot outbid, uh, you know, Mr. Bancroft. You Like, he's richer than he's much richer. And Cyril knows that and he can, you know, beat any price. He is, um, you know, he is just, you know, Cyril is someone who can look at a life debt that he literally owes someone, and he views that as nothing but a way to profit more off that murder. That is something that, um, you know, like, and it was very important for me, too. Um, this is where I think I was stretching it a little with, uh, with history, um, is the fact that Cyril is not really a sexist or a racist. He's not a very prejudiced person the way I think the common villain of that era would be, but that was a deliberate choice on my end as well, because he's someone who is so deep into the life that he lives that he's a little that he's like beyond prejudice. He doesn't see people as in racial terms or sexism. He sees it as just how much can I profit? Everything is like, he just loops everything into the category of plus or minus on that column. And, you know, um, when I'm looking at a show like Deadwood, um, when I'm looking at a guy like George Hearst, you know, obviously the racism and the sexism would still be there historically, but I felt that was a more interesting route to take with that villain. Cause I really did enjoy the scenes where I was able to get into Cyril's head and the way I was able to write him and his dialogue and his thought process. It was very important for me to portray him as a person, just a completely horrible and irredeemable one. And, and to me, I mean, he reads he reads as an utter sociopath, which I think yeah. is 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 why it doesn't seem strange that he's not misogynistic or racist because he doesn't he doesn't care about anyone other than himself enough to really have any specific hatreds. I that nothing that he does is personal; it's just transactional. Right. And, uh, yeah, that that amorality really really struck me, and it was. It was interesting in that it is it is not standard Western fare. It is it is not the the foul-hearted you know gunslinging villain that's coming in. It's it's apathy with a checkbook that is that is coming in, and it it, it makes it feel it makes it feel more current and real in a lot of ways and very timely because we still have issues like that, and uh, and so. That part of the part of the story really resonated for me. I I love the way you put that. I, I I love that phrase, apathy with a checkbook. That that is just like that is better than anything I could come up with. That's that's just brilliant. <laughs> you know, like w w w when I when I was like creating Cyril, I was looking at villains like um, Frank from Once Upon a Time in the West, um, Loco from The Great Silence, like all these great Western villains, and they're you know. The one thing that struck me, um, if you've ever seen, you know, when, when I, a lot of my influence were, were the spaghetti westerns. Oh, oh, god! And, yeah. and one thing that I really enjoyed about that is the villains of those are really people who act with the color of law and power on their side. Like, um, you know, Loco uh, Tigrero from Great Silence. He is a bounty hunter. He is someone who acts under the purview of the law, and he is also a bone-chilling sociopath who can murder people without a drop of a hat. And there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of Cyril in there. Um, I was also looking at things like um, Blood Meridian is one of my favorite books. I think that one, you know, that's a brilliant work. I'm not going to put myself anywhere near Cormac McCarthy. Believe me, I, I, I know I am nowhere close. 
But, you know, just like the brutality and the bloodshed of the West is when you're able to, you know, get that immorality, that sociopathy. I, I, I find that very interesting to write. And I just love the way you phrased it. Like um, the relationship between them was kind of a truncated version of like uh, Frank from Once Upon a Time in the West, who is one of my all time like favorite Western bad guys played by Henry Fonda and his relationship with Morton, his employer. Um that was something that really inspired me. Like, you know, you just take away, I just thought like, take away that sadism, just introduce that kind of amorality, just the idea of, you know, uh, the way I phrased it before is Cyril would probably be a guy you would love to have a drink with. If there's nothing else going on, Cyril would probably buy you around, laugh at your jokes, toast you, have a drink. And then if someone paid him 10 bucks, he'd cut your throat right after and never think about you again. That sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> arm's length i'm i'm good <laughs> yeah it's interesting because I, I wrote down in my notes like whether blood meridian was kind of like a template for cyril with judge holden and you know all the the amorality that's there but cyril's a, an interesting character because he's he is a survivalist he's a somebody who's self-interested in and you know he, that first scene where he's basically you know, willing to take the charge, but he also takes a step back. So somebody else is in front of him, you know, is very, yeah. you know, revealing of his character. One thing I was, I was kind of curious about just kind of going back to the historical aspects when you were looking up or trying to, you know, get information about the 1880s and that time period, but particularly around like Jewish settlers, Jewish, you know, immigrants in, in, in the West, could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I'm, I'm, I think that's an area where there's a, like you said, there's not a lot of like, maybe sources or like, you know, media that you can, you can get to, but I was kind of curious, like, did you use or find anything that, that helped or assisted you with that? As a matter of fact, honestly, yes. Um, a lot of it was really piecing together, um, you know, various articles or various things from various books. Um, there was a lot of, you know, obviously there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the, you know, on the East coast and throughout America at the time. It's, you know, was a very anti-Semitic country for a long time. Jews, um, were either facing uh, de jure or de facto segregation. Uh, well, not segregation, but, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, persecution, um, discrimination, um, you know, not comparable to what, um, you know, POC were facing, especially, you know, black people after the Civil War. But there was kind of the idea of, for many Jewish people, the westward expansion was a way to escape that and, you know, make a comfortable living and make a comfortable sort of... Um, endeavor on the frontier i'm not gonna you know whitewash some of the nastier aspects of it there was um still a lot of clashes with you know the natives there was still displacement and there were jewish people who were party to that um but there were a lot of other cases where you had jewish people who would um, intermarry with indigenous people and that is a reason there were you know people who were of you know mixed of mixed birth of indigenous and, and jewish uh, heritage um, and you had even people who became like serious entrepreneurs. Like I, I made a reference to um, Levi in the book, um, mm -hmm. who create, you know, who basically invented the jeans. I mentioned, uh, you know, one of the businessmen mentions that you know one of the one of the Jewish settlers has uh, you know a new pair of comfortable pants over there, and Cyril just makes the comment of, "Well, I'm all thrilled for our Hebrew friends, but talk business to me." <laughs> so um, yeah, there there was there was a lot of interesting uh, history I did find on that. Um, you know, believe it or not, it's actually kind of funny. Like my my research for that when I really started this being a thing was because I remembered this episode of The Simpsons where Lisa has a substitute teacher who shows up as a cowboy and he's Jewish and like Lisa's pointing out all the inaccuracies and she's like, Well, you were Jew you're Jewish and there were no Jewish cowboys. He's like, actually, there were Jewish cowboys. <laughs> Big guys who were great shots and spent money freely. So I was like, I, I, was love like that. <laughs> I was like, wait, were there Jewish cowboys? I gotta look this up. And I'm like, yeah, actually there were. And you know, the West was a much more diverse place than it's, you know, usually portrayed in like the John Ford stuff. You had, you know, you had a Black people, Asian people, Hispanic Hispanic people, um, and Jewish people, and you know those stories. I think need and deserve to be told a lot. And some Native Americans, as we and find yes, with, with Esther's lineage. Yes, was there ever like kind of like a a, a true analog to to uh, to Gray's Cliffs? Was it was there anything like that, like a an enclave that you know <clears throat> you know you, you could find in your research? Not, not really. There were like Jewish, um, like there were some, you know, Jewish areas. There weren't as many, um, 
like, uh, you know, almost completely like Jewish towns. Gray's Bluffs was really um, something of an imagine, something out of my imagination there was just one thriving settlement of minorities. And I think, um, you know, Esther is a very interesting character for me that way. And, you know, she's a character I really loved writing. The idea of, you know, the Muskegee Creek were a more Eastern tribe. They were not um, a Western one. I, um, you know, Esther is not part uh, Cheyenne or Apache from, from those regions. You know, she, um, she her, the, the Creek would still be a straight, would still be um, strangers. That's, you know, not their territory. So Esther is doubly separated from, you know, her original heritage. You know, her mother was deceased from a very young age. Her father is not a perfect person, but he really did the best he could in raising her there. Um, I, 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 I didn't see any, um, you know, like direct parallels to Esther when I was like starting my, when I started writing, um, Esther was really, a, um, in the original short story that I first did this on, Esther was not, um, open, was not, um, half was not indigenous as well. That was something that really, um, hit me when I started expanding it. And I had, uh, some friends and sensitivity readers, who were there to kind of help me out with that, thankfully. Um, so I'm really glad how she ended up. Um, hopefully that resonates for other people. And I wanted to make it clear, you know, is she an indigenous character? Yes. But am I telling an indigenous story? No, I don't think that's necessarily my place, but I am telling a Jewish story because her Jewish identity is so much a part of her and that's how she's grown up. And it's so important for her to embrace, embrace both sides of her identity. And I think something that most people don't really understand, or a good number of people who aren't, you know, the history prof here, uh, is her, shall we say, quasi-sister, paramour, however you will, uh, Siobhan, the Irish were looked down upon at that time just as much as the Native Americans and all of the other marginalized uh, groups, right? You know, um, to an ex- not to the same extent. Uh, and- the Irish, you know, something I also wanted to make clear in the story, the Irish are occupy a lower rung on the social ladder, but they're considered, especially around that time, as a more, you know, I hate to say the word, dirty sort of white person. Um, but they are, like, kept as a, you know, they are on the social ladder above Black people and above the indigenous um kind of the prevailing view of Western settlers was, uh, how do I put, like, you know, the, you know, Teddy Roosevelt once said, you know, the only good, Indi- I'm not saying the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but I am saying that about like nine tenths and I wouldn't inquire too much about the tenths. The settlers like really wanted to completely like erase the natives in a lot of cases. It was not the, it was definitely not the same as the Irish. And one thing I did want to get across in the book is, you know, Siobhan is, you know, um, the way I, the way I see it, they grew up together. Um, they've actually, by the time the book starts, they've probably been a romantic item for probably around a decade. I kind of see them as getting together like around 15, 16, realizing their feelings for one another. So they're a pretty devoted couple, but Siobhan, um, has a very risky personality and she likes to take some of those risks. She likes to show off and, you know, be a little ostentatious and flaunt things and have a good time. And as Esther kind of puts it to her, you know, like trouble doesn't find us the same way. Like she says that, you know, um, basically she says, you know, when people are angry, they're going to be angrier at a indigenous woman and some with darker skin than they would an Irish person. Um, And, you know, Siobhan, it's kind of a, you know, one thing that was very important for me with Siobhan, um, and this was very deliberate, she's a Jewish convert. Her father was a preacher who passed away when she was young. So Siobhan was raised by uh, Abraham, and I kind of have the idea that, you know, in my head, I never say it quite out, Abraham did not force anything on her, but Siobhan grew to very much identify with Judaism, and she eventually converted of her own volition, and she really, like, loves and identifies with her, you know, her adopted culture and faith, but there is, um, it's really important for me to portray a Jewish convert as no less Jewish than someone who is born into it. Um, so that was some, that was a very deliberate choice, but also to make clear that, you know, once again, when just at a glance, you know, Siobhan might be Irish and that, you know, someone who's like a wasp would look down on her more, but they would definitely view her as a step above an indigenous person or a black person. Brutal realities of the time, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now let, let me, let me ask you getting, getting back to, uh, how how the story really does feel it feels 
it, it, it feels timeless, but sadly it also feels kind of current. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, the author, not? <laughs> the, the author Je- Jeffrey Knowles, who wrote a separate piece once famously came to my high school and, uh, during a Q&A, one of the students like, okay, so so we've been told, so Finney's the Christ figure, and he stopped him right there. And he's like, no, 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 no. I wrote a story. Your, teacher, your teachers have added all sorts of crap. So now my, my question is, because it does, it does feel almost allegorical for our, our world today. Uh, was, was that part of your intent, or did you just sit down to, to write a good old-fashioned fa- creepy Western? Oh, one one hundred percent. It was absolutely, um, you know, it, it was absolutely inspired by a lot of stuff going on today. Um, I'm not going to lie, the 2019 Charlottesville, you know, uh, riots were a big influence on me as a Jewish person. That was really a wake up for a lot of people. Um, that was like really kind of when it kind of hit you. Like these people are always here. You know, when, when you when you're when you're growing up Jewish, you know, you know, there's anti-Semitism. You know, it's around. But that was really kind of something just really unavoidable and just really uh, massive um that that really lingered with me in a lot of writing um it really it really stuck with me there's a lot of you know it's it's not the same as you know it you know it's not the same as it was in the decades prior but there's always you know some kind of fear under it um so yeah when when i was writing this the the themes of anti-semitism were absolutely like at the front of my mind. The the way that it's processed today, the idea that there are people who would happily participate in, you know, still in pogroms and violence was 100% there. Um, my first intent was to really tell like, you know, just a fun, ripping, good Western story. Um, there are some, you know, like allusions to Jewish culture. Um, you know, the name Abraham was certainly not a uh, coincidence. Uh, neither was the name Esther. Um, but, but, um, but yeah, there's definitely like a blend of, you know, like I want to tell the historical story, but also I want to make it relevant to today's themes. I want to make sure that this is a story that Jewish people can still resonate with, especially because, I'm, especially because you know, when you're talking about Jewish uh, people, there's so many different sects and cultures and disagreements and ways to worship and, you know, between reform and, uh, and Orthodox and conservative and Hasidic and Haredi that, you know, there, there's no way to write every single person just in one character but there's still um, shared themes and peoplehood that I think can resonate through that story. Oh, go ahead, Bob. No, go right ahead, Mark. I was going to say, kind of like following along that, that theme or the question is that I found it really interesting and also very modern context that there, there's often like a contrasting view of uh, what America means, right. Presented in the, in the story, you know, there's the, the more cynical pessimistic view that Cyril advocates for and then abraham of course is more shared burden and lifting people up you know i'm just kind of curious because that's that's a very when you read that it's it's very like oh now you know it's it, it this is always going on this is always part of like you know the history yeah. but it's also one of these like you, you have to keep fighting that battle you know over and over again you know sort of view yeah. and i was just kind of curious like you know what you know, as you look back at sort of like the history that this entails going, you know, back, you know, to the 1880s and even before then, but, you know, to the modern times, it seems like a, a cyclical thing, right? You know, where you have this kind of like contrasting views of America that are, that are present. And, you know, you're, we're using that kind of like as a, 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 you know, a way for us to, you know, have a conversation about that. You know, I'm, I'm kind of curious about your, you know, how you're presenting America, you know, in, and what the objectives are from different points of view. I mean, in, in all honesty, yes. When you talk about like what's cyclical, um, that was definitely something that was also on my mind. I mean, you know, um, a lot of people, you know, America can be a great place, but there's also a lot of darkness there. There's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of, you know, terror. There's a lot of horror in the past. And that was, I think, started ever since, uh, you know, you go back to 1492 and colonialism when it first came to the American shores. I mean, you know, um, I think a lot of people have a difficulty reconciling with that too. It's uh, you know, there's very much um, in, in a current culture, a, you know, rah, rah, we're the greatest, you know, um, nothing bad happened. We're trying to cover up all of that. Um, thankfully, you know, there's some media that gets made that really showcases that, that history. Um, there's one, there's one uh, Western that came out not long ago called the English, which I was, I was a real fan of with uh, Emily Blunt and uh, Rafe Spall, which was really fantastic and really got into that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, when, when I'm, when I'm looking at it, um, 
unfortunately, it really does go back. Um, the you know the themes of violence and brutality and pogroms and diaspora, I unfortunately think are unfortunately relevant themes throughout history for a very long time, and it's been part of you know Jewish history since um, for the last two thousand years, ever since the uh, you know the expulsion uh, by the Romans, and it's you know it's. It wasn't ever done as badly as I portray it as in in the novella. Um, you know, there wasn't, like I said, an equivalent to Bray's Bluffs that was attacked in such a way. But yeah, um, I, I think that, sorry, I'm going off a little tangent here, but it's, uh, but yeah, no, I really think that um, when we're looking at it, it's important to kind of show the past as it was and learn as much about that so we can, you know, have that better future. It is um, really important to me to not sanitize uh, the past and what happened, you know, you cannot pretty up slavery. You can't pretty up genocide. You can't pretty up uh, colonialism and manifest destiny. And you know, once it, it's the same, you know, um, some it's it's the same stuff that feeds into the future. Like um, when people portray um, the Nazi, you know, when people portray the Nazis, it wasn't just a matter of the Nazis just appearing out of, out of uh, nowhere one day. It was. Um, a lead up of centuries of European anti-Semitism and German colonialism and taking all this um, inspiration from all kinds of horrific immorality from across history. So kind of one thing I do want to get across with, you know, my books is it's, you know, really important for us to, you know, it's not something that we need to, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. It's not, you know, people view it as a guilt. I don't view it that way, but I do think we have a responsibility to know and accept that past and look at that, sh- look at that different, you know, the differing pain and understand it so we can go forward and hopefully create something better. Yeah. I mean, the way that Grace Bluff is depicted is sort of like this utopian, you know, place for your prejudice, you know, you know, safe haven, you know, where, they're they're in some sense protected right from the outside world by you know all mythological forces, but also just their own sort of culture. And it's it is one of these things that it, that's not necessarily historical either, but it provides like a, an objective, right? You know where that's hope, where we hope to be, right? As a as a culture and society, and you just have to kind of keep you know, this theme of rebuilding and and moving on, you know, in the face of hardship is it's still very relevant. It's still you know something that I think it's, it's a nice contrast, you know, in, in, in using the historical aspects to kind of give a framework is really, really interesting about the story. Well, I'm, yeah. Oh, no, go ahead, please. I, I was just thinking, you know, and while, while there, there might not be a, a, a direct real life um, connection between Gray's Bluff and, uh, and, and the Jewish community, what, what happened to Gray's Bluff, I, I'm from Illinois. And so it, you know the history. The history of of Mormon settlements, and I mean, it, it was it was in in like the past ten years that Illinois finally repealed the law that allowed you to kill Mormons on site for being in the state of Illinois uh, after they were driven out and and towns were, were driven out. So it, it felt very it felt very of the period, uh, even even if there hadn't been a been an enclave like that. It it it, it, it is it is frighteningly real and accurate. And, uh, and disturbing because United States history is nothing if not disturbing. Yeah, no, it's it's very disturbing. There's there's so much by way of you know ethnic cleansing and bloodshed and slavery and all this uh, you know all, when 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 you like actually look at the narratives uh, like w- there was one thing that you know I looked at um, I didn't take a direct influence from this because this was really not my place to explore um, this is this is not something I drew influence on but it is something that like really changed my view of how I viewed American history was learning of um, you know Sant was learning of Sand Creek and John Chivington and what they did to the uh, the na- natives there it's one of the worst massacres in American history it's as hor- it's one of the most horrific things I've ever like I had literally ever heard of. And this was something that just went pretty much like almost completely unpunished because of it. It it just wasn't something that people saw out of the norm. Like it did shock the country at the time um, with the brutality, but it just kept going. Uh, You know, it was, it's, I mean, honestly, I I, I can't in good conscience tell people to look up, uh, you know, Sand Creek because it is something really horrific but it really did when i learned about it it really did change my view upon american history it's like oh my god like i never learned about this in school this is just right we just learned 54 40 year fight and uh, and and that was sort of the end of it 
Yeah. American history was never like never my favorite subject in school and <laughs> sadly still isn't. But I have to say, I I'm not usually a fan of the genre, but the opening scene was so well done. Uh I was curious if if there was an an initial plan to cover further parts of the war or you just wanted to establish the original connection between Cyril and Abraham really it was it was really just that it was really establishing that connection um it was also very important for me i, I know i keep saying those words very important for me but you know but i, I i'm nothing if not repetitive um you, you should see all the work my editor did on making sure that i took out all the repetitive word choices but... oh no no your your editor did a bang up job and that's coming from i am so uh, Little Miss Nitpicky here. So no, I'm so grateful for Ken. I tr- I truly <laughs> am. He's just a fantastic person, great editor. Um, really, it was really just to establish uh, the relationship between them. Though, if I'm ever able to do more, there is more of you know Abraham. I want to explore. There is more of uh, those intervening years. But um, long and short of it is, it was very important for me to portray them as Union soldiers and make sure that you know, like one thing I hate in westerns. And thankfully, this is going away more and more is the noble confederate thing. I hate that trope. I cannot stand it. I will not write it. Um, it's, it's you know, like it was very vital for me to show Abraham as someone who was a union man. He was a believer in fighting, you know, slavery. He was a believer in, you know, the cause they were in. And, you know, in it, it is true in the war that initially a lot of soldiers did not see it as a fight to end slavery. But as the war continued, many of them saw it, at, it, it became more of a crusade to end slavery. And I believe in Maryland, uh, correct my historical knowledge if I'm wrong, someone, but um, the vote to end slavery was only solidified when, this, when the returning soldiers cast their ballots. So the, it, it became a real, uh, you know, it became a real struggle. And, but also on the flip side, you have Cyril, who is a Union soldier. And Cyril is someone who, you know, is, I, I don't believe that he would care very much about that. He's just there to get paid and also to show that, you know, just because you were a Union soldier didn't mean you were a good person. Um, you know, there were Union soldiers who then went right to uh, the West and committed horrible atrocities against the natives. And you had, um, you know, even General Sherman, who, you know, I, I, I'm never one to pass up uh, mocking the Confederacy for getting their tails kicked. I love but, General uh, Sherman. <laughs> I know, but, Sherman, but yeah, but even Sherman did some terrible stuff. With oh yeah. Indians, but you know, like, Hey, but like when I see the March of the sea, like the Yankee and me goes like, Oh yeah, give it to him. Um, Just don't <laughs> cheer for it at the uh, diorama at Stone Mountain. We had to leave very, <laughs> very quickly. But as I was reminded where we were, there was a lot of dark glances coming my I way. I believe it. Yeah. But yeah, um, but yeah, the Civil War was something, um, you know, it, it's really important for, it, it was, uh, I keep saying that, but um, one of the reasons I chose the Civil War as kind of a backstory setting is the Civil War for me is really um, such a turning point in American history because it is really the final settlement of the slavery, of the question of slavery, because that was the number one dominant political issue for a century of American founding. Um, it's the major issues on ballots for decades. It is the source of every made of major conflicts and compromises and, um, and, and fights and Supreme court decisions, everything that came around slavery, the war was about slavery. It was all, you know, it finally became about ending it. And one thing that, you know, I absolutely hate the whole canard about like, Oh, they just wanted states rights. I'm just like, no, the South didn't care about states rights. The South was totally fine with doing anti-states rights stuff as long as they were, you know, as long as they were able to keep and expand slavery. So that so that all coming to a head in the Civil War, that is when I think um, America just fundamentally changes. And the intervening decades to when I set the book, um, that is really where um, that is really where it um, the backstory is supposed to lead into something very important. It's they are living in a very changed country that is still scarred from that war, that there's still that lingering feeling. There's still a ton of resentment and pain and racial hierarchies that have not gone away and that won't go away and how the brutality has gone from the, uh, the East and moved West. But, um, I, I, I never, I honestly, I, I never really considered, um, writing more past the civil war. Um, I really think that might've gotten like a little boring pretty quickly. It's really just to establish that connection between Cyril and Abraham and really to establish like the kind of person Cyril is. 
Yeah, it, I, I was kind of curious because you you mentioned if you get a chance to explore more of that, you know, Abraham um, development or that intervening years. But the but to me, and not not no spoilers, but the open the ending really kind of leaves an opening for potentially additional um, stories in this uh, in this uh, narrative. And I'm I'm kind of curious: Are you have you given much thought to that, or are you plan? You know, have you uh, you you thought you know what might come next? You know, or or how that might. Um, be developed further. You know, obviously, you know, unfortunately, it's um, I, I would I would love to do more. I definitely have ideas, and I will say without any spoilers, um, the long shalom does have a little Easter egg to nod to hungers okay. that I, that I think readers of hungers are going to recognize and be very happy with. Um, yes, most of your writing, uh, smaller chunks like a short stories, the novellas like this, or do you have anything novel length? You know, like this um, clocks in it. 85 88 pages something, something like, that. like that yeah most yeah. of my most oh I, I love seeing the hard copy <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> love love seeing it um the you know, most most of my stuff I, I really do like novellas when i'm doing horror because it's so easy to get like a good bite size you know like fun breezy read um my pirate one that's coming out with darklet press uh, later this year or next year is going to be novel length that's going to be like my first uh, big one me and my best friend right now, we are actually working on a uh, fantasy novel together that we are just putting the finishing touches with editing on, and then we're going to hopefully query it. It's not really horror. There is some horror influence stuff in there, which I can't really say too much about it. But that's, no, you, uh, you, that's... you said pirates. You yeah, saw... you can't come on the show. Just say pirates. You saw Bob's eyebrow just going to leap, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me more about the pirates. I happily will. So I will say this. Um, one of my friends like made a joke that they called the Rosenverse, where a lot of my short stories and a lot of my, my, my a lot of my Jewish stuff is a little, you know, you're not going to miss anything if you read it like in whatever order, but some of it's connected a little like, you know, some of it is. Um, I use like different locations or different character or, you know, it's occasionally same folklore things. But the pirate one is set during the golden age of piracy. And it is about a crew of evil Dibbics who are possessing um, their own crews and they rot and they have their own ship and they are hunting a Jewish uh, sailor who was formerly a part of their crew for the secrets he has. And he ends up being taken in uh, by a by a pirate crew that is led by a Jewish pirate captain. And there are several Jewish, uh, you know, there are Jewish pirates around but he's taken in by this crew, and then after a massacre on Nassau, the they end up having to flee and essentially try to explore as to what these Dibbics want, what they are uh, gunning for them for, and the secrets of like these things hidden deep below the sea that they're hunting. And the first, I, I will just give you the first line from this book. Um, it is, when he was alive, Captain Sebastian Hawkins was a nightmare. Dead, he was an atrocity. Oh. Oh, now, now is is this the uh, is this the release after the long shalom? It will be after the long shalom. It will either be at the end of this one or uh, or or like I said, next year. There is like a, a few little links between that and the long shalom, even though they're in different eras. Um, but I really, really, really had fun writing these. There's just so much I was able to do. Just kind of like you know, write a swashbuckling rip roaring pirated fun pirate adventure with uh you know jewish folklore and jewish characters and you know all like the the obscure stuff a lot of people don't even know about and being able to do like new twists on it in in deference to elena i won't swear as i say take my money <laughs> <laughs> the, way, the way the way i pitched it it is um evil dead meets the vigil meets black sales <laughs> Okay, Mark, so we know what we will tie into Skull and Crossbones Classics once we get another couple of issues out, right? And, I, and I'm assuming that the Long Shalom, it, based on the title, I'm thinking it's sort of a hard-boiled detective story? 100%. Uh, the, way that, uh, the way this actually uh, started off was uh, Off Limits Press, who is a publisher I love. They do, uh, you know, they publish... Tim McGregor, Catherine McCarthy, Laurel Hightower, uh, Haley Piper, who are all authors I adore. They had a fan, they had a, basically they were saying, hey, you know what? We are doing a line of pulp horror novels and we are going to open this for uh, publishing slots. So we want you to send us your best pitch. Um, you know, like write, like write a pitch, uh, make it as long or short as you want, have an idea. 
So I had the, I, you know, I had the idea of like, Hey, let's do a, uh, you know, like a detective story. I have always loved the detective stuff and Hey, Raymond Chandler was homophobic and racist and anti-Semitic. Let's do something where you can, uh, he would hate. <laughs> where you can like, rec- re- like, like, let's reclaim that. So <laughs> I sent that in and it's like the idea of like, let's take the characters who would be, uh, you know, stereotypes like the Jewish people and the queer people and the black and, you know, black people and, you know, tra- and Asian people. Let's give them the power. Let's make them the heroes. So I sent it in on that. I'm like, you know what? They're going to get hundreds of queries. It's, you know, at least he read it. I'll figure out some way. Maybe I'll do this book. A few days later, I just get the, th- my email buzzes and it's Waylon Jordan from Offload saying, Zach, I've read this five times. I love it more each time. How soon can you get this done? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. Excellent. So, I write this book as fast as I can. I, I have my friends review it. And I'm like, all right, it's going to be as good as it's going to get. I send it in. And then uh, like a few days later, I'm like, I don't hear anything. So a few days later, I'm like, I get the email. Zach, I read your book. Uh, when can you talk? And I'm like, I can talk right now. <laughs> my cell phone number. So I'm like, I'm like, hello. And he's like, well, I read your book. Like long, long pause. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, I was like, sorry, I dropped the phone. I love it and I want to publish it. I'm like, let's do it. So, <laughs> so I was like, I described it as basically it is Raymond Chandler meets P. Jelly Clark's Ring Shout meets um, Laird Barron's The Croning and you make it Jewish. So that is, it, it was an absolute blast to write. It is just like a book I just genuinely love. I tried to make it pulpy and fun and funny and scary and, you know, and just crazy wild it's all about it's a uh, jewish detective who's trying to find uh, missing people on the streets of on the streets of new york who the cops don't care who are missing and uh you know you get in, like get into all kinds of action you have some jewish folklore and some original monsters and it was it's, it's just like a book i just absolutely loved writing and i'm just so glad they took a chance on me Elena, please realize there's only so many times I could say this without swearing, but I still can. Take my money. <laughs> it is up for pre-order on Amazon now. And I like it is like the mm. cover art Adrian Medina did an incredible job. And let me also give a shout out to uh Keelan Patrick Burke for that hungers cover too. Because oh my oh, god. Oh yeah. <clears throat> I absolutely it, it is it is striking in it in its simplicity, but it really it, it carries through very nicely. I give I mean, Keelan, it carries through to the feel of, shall we say, weird frontiers. Yes, it is very it is, DCC. It is honestly like I, I, I am giving full credit to Keelan because you know not only is he an amazing artist and just a great person, he is just an incredible writer and artist. I was like saying uh, they're like uh, I was like uh, maybe a monster and the two women and maybe a set and sun and then like first time I see the drawing. He took like my little ramblings. I was like, okay, no, this is absolute perfection. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, that is it, it is it is a phenomenal book. And, and I've got to I've got to tell everyone again. I, I greatly enjoyed this book. It's available right now on, on Kindle for like a dollar. The hard the hard copy comes oh. out in is it eight days? In eight days. The uh Brigades Gate the hardcover up for official release on the big release day. So that is going to be the 17th. Nice. Yeah, so, so eight, yeah. So eight days from now, it is, it is totally worth picking. And it up will be in hardcover as opposed to um, the advanced reader soft cover, right? Um, I don't think, I, I think it's just going to be a paperback. Okay. Um, Briggsgate um, only does paperback. I'm using, I'm using hard copy just as a, uh, you know, euphemism. Hard copy versus hard right. cover. Gotcha. I, ha- gotcha. I, ha- I have, I, yeah, okay. I haven't married, I haven't married a hard cover yet, but one day, one day. <laughs> no, and, and before everyone thinks, oh, this is going to be really deep, really heavy. No, you, I'm a big fan of inserting a couple of original lines uh, when we do our book reviews. And I absolutely love the passage uh, where Percival Beard is introduced as a man with less impressive facial hair than his name may have implied. That's just inspired. (laughs) I will say that was based on something from real life and is an in-joke that only a few friends will get, but that was a little satisfying to write. It's still curious. I mean, it translates well. I, I honestly, I really did enjoy writing the Blackhawks just for how terrible they are. Like, what, what, one of my one of my favorite lines there is when Cyril is 
disciplining one of them. And he's like, you know, if you step out of line, you know what I'll do? And the guy's like, you'll kill me. No, I'll dock your pay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause he's transactional. Right. It's, it's, it's all like, about money. Shooting his men will have a very negative effect on employment rates. So he's not going to do it. But but this is this is a is a great read from beginning to end. There's there's plenty of of truly just eerie creepy. I, I would actually almost say like nineteen seven like mid nineteen seventies eerie magazine kind of creep factor moments in here. Um, you could you could almost picture this entire book in your mind in in those Bernie Wrights and black and white illustrations really carries through if any of our listeners remember uh back to last february february of 22 when uh we reviewed oh shoot gertrude barrows bennett uh the citadel Mm. the citadel of fear that's what it was yep um there were some moments that felt just so intertwined that I I had a moment where I was like, wait, which I had to pull apart the strands of my brain. No, no, we're over here today, but it was so close that it, I mean, and we're talking 1917. So it's a really close feel and, and that evocative for me. I really, I, I truly appreciate that. That it was, you know, the, the, the way it started off, believe it or not, it was a short story. Um, it was one that I wrote um, for a Western, the Western call after Silver Shamrock uh, publishing uh, left. They were originally going to do a Western uh, horror anthology. And then a couple of different publishers decided they were going to do Western ones. Um, Timber Ghost Press and Brigade's Gate and Death's Head Press. And Death's Head did one that had like, you know, like, they had some great, a great list of invited authors, only like a few open slots. So I sent it to that. They said, no, um, I sent it to Brigid's gate. Um, and I was waiting and waiting and Brigid's gate, uh, sends back like, Hey, we want to talk to you. Uh, the editor read this and he thinks there should be more. How would you feel about turning this into a novel letter novella? And I was like, uh, I'm not going to say no, absolutely. <laughs> I'm like sitting there. I'm like, wow, now I've actually got to expand this. So let's get going. Um, so that was probably like the most fortuitous no of my life, honestly. Um, I actually sent them. A, I actually sent them a thank you uh, later, just saying like, by the way, um, thank you for rejecting me because this worked out great. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I never would have guessed because you it doesn't forward. <laughs> it, it doesn't feel padded. It doesn't feel stretched. It's a very, no. it, it's a very tight, lean story. There's, there's not there. It, it's not filled with fluff that doesn't need to be there just to to add to a word count it really flows nicely um, yeah that was, seriously people if you're still listening to me talk about this book just hit the link and buy the book <laughs> please please buy it i want to do this I, I would love to do some sequels yeah i think I, my my experience was i i read this in i think in an afternoon because it's one of these things that once you start reading it it you know that you get this kind of like heart pounding you know uh, what's going to happen next? You know, how, I want to get to the the conclusion. Yeah. I mean, it's really this sort of accelerated, you know, reading. You know, and it, it's it's just the right length, I think, for for that kind of like you know engagement and being really totally diving into the story and being attuned to it. And yeah, I'd recommend it here. It's it's really great. So and it doesn't out. feel too long. It it's not like something you would need to read for a book report or. But boy, if you did, it'd be cool. <laughs> <laughs> It was it it, it, it it was really a lot of fun to write. Um, I'm really glad it's resonating with people. Um, you know, it's uh, it, it, it's re- it's really just um, I, I really just love the characters. Esther and Siobhan were just people who really um, they didn't have as much character in the original short story. Um, you know, they were like still an item. They were still together, but they it really let um, the short story was told entirely from Cyril's POV. And one thing I think was great was being able to write from Esther's. Um, I really enjoyed getting into her head. I think she, um, ended up as a terrific character. There's definitely more that I I would love to do with her. There's, um, definitely ideas I have in my head right now. You know, I don't want to give too much away. I do know, um, it was, it, um, but her and Siobhan, it was really something, um, that I really loved doing with that. It was kind of writing a love story where it's not a developing one. It's where all the development has already happened. 
and I'm writing people who are more of a committed couple than they are, um, you know, like budding lovers in a sense. Like these are two people who care about and trust and, you know, treasure one another and how that dynamic um, would be changed rather than just building them up romantically through it, just already writing them as people who are together and already happy. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. I hear you. God. Now, now I'm stuck at book report because my English teachers would have loved this because Zach actually did use allegory. See, it was a bunch of crap. <laughs> they, they would, English teachers are going to love you, Zach. They're going to love you. Absolutely love you. Oh. Oh, yeah, be, there's great opportunity for the Q and A's after, and you know, hey, let's discuss the book. And, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm 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 actually going to be on a uh, my, I'm going to be on my first panel at StokerCon actually for uh, my, for a horror westerns. Wow. No, well, again, then then very very fitting that it's the the number one new release right now in Western <laughs> fiction on Amazon, right? I mean, that's that's yeah, got to feel great. That has got to feel I am absolutely blown away. It was like the number one new release in Western horror fiction and in, in like Jewish American fiction. I'm like, okay, like uh, my, my mom texts me to say like, great job. And I'm just like, all right, Jewish achievement unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fantastic! Well, yeah, we are we are kind of running out of time here. So let me first for, thank you so much for coming on on the show, Zach. Thank, thank and, you uh, so much for having me. This this is a, this is an absolute blast. Uh, you guys are awesome. You from from the moment from the moment uh, I because we came across you on Twitter. You, uh, so, some as someone who who follows Sanctum, I'm not sure who it is. I'm gonna have to go look and thank them now. Had, uh, had had posted and and, and uh, like and retweeted had, and retweeted your initial post and they're like, gosh, this guy's got to get on a podcast. I looked at some, like he needs to be on our podcast. That's where he needs to be. Oh, that that was Dennis Beecher. That was that actually yeah. was one of our Florida friends. Oh, was that Dennis? Thank you, Dennis. Thank you very Thank much. You, Thank you so much. That explains why Dennis knew about pirates and I didn't. Uh huh. <laughs> oh, I love yeah. Dennis. He's our he's our resident cartographer at the table when we're playing AD and D. Dennis is awesome. I've I've known Dennis for a while, and Dennis will know the Percival Beard reference. Oh, now that is very interesting. De Dennis will know what that means. Uh, all right, Dennis, we're going to lean on you. Right. And and the <laughs> Venn diagram narrows. Yes. Yes. The. <laughs> In the internet age, the circles grow ever smaller. But thank you again so much, Zach. Um, Mark, did you have any other questions before we depart? I, we I, you know, just congratulations. There, I think I had one last question, which was, you know, the way the horses are depicted in the novels really struck me because they're so lovingly and affectionately cared for, and I think they escape all the harm, you know, that that befalls everybody else. And I was just kind of curious: do you have any kind of like? attachment to horses or to animals in that way that made you write and write them so affectionately i am a huge animal lover um i love animals very dearly it's very hard for me to see animals hurt even in mm -hmm. fiction um so i tried my best to avoid call me a wimp but i try to avoid hurting animals in in stories there and i was like i'm already doing like so much bloodshed with the human characters I, I i gotta leave the horses alone here no it's it's great because i mean as an animal lover too it's it's one of those things it's like a safe place you can always go back to that when when all the things are going around you're like uh, at least the animals have sugar cubes and you know. it, it was very it was very uh irregular for a normal book <laughs> You need to write something from their perspective, you know. The, the, <laughs> I, definitely have, I definitely, I definitely have ideas for those sequels where Lacey, uh, Lacey that was Lacey, wasn't it? Yeah. Lacey and Parrick. That's right. And yeah. now I can just see the horses dragging like chestnuts to the caves and making their own pact. <laughs> oh yeah, no. Protectors from coyotes. All right, now, now we're getting silly. <laughs> so, so Zach, if if you had if you one thing that people should know about about your writing in general or about this book, what should it be? One thing. Well, um, you know what? I would just say uh, keep a close eye on Jewish horror. I think there's a lot to Jewish horror and Jewish fantasy. There's you know been a lot of there's a lot of great stuff out there, but I think the surface has only been scratched. 
and you know let's see what the future brings let's uh let's make more let's get more writers out there doing great stuff with it new stories from new voices definitely love it totally fair um, jen do you have any parting words for everybody um looking forward to seeing the uh the official print and looking forward to seeing everybody next week same place same time for our discussion and uh, stats and music selections to accompany Lee Brackett's Hounds of Skate. Mark, that's any a much bigger books? book we got to read. Yeah, that is much bigger. <laughs> yeah, I just Versus. thanks for the opportunity to you know read your book and and talk about it. It was a pleasure. Honestly, thank thank you. The pleasure is all mine, and I'm just really honored to, to hear all the kind words. It really does mean a lot. Thank you so much. So write more now, dang it. Yes, I'm, I'm on it. I, I'm working on stuff. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and of course, thank you to, to Elena behind the scenes. Thank you to the people at Bridget's Gate Press for uh, providing us with the advanced reader copies so that we could read the story before the, the show and before the uh, the Kindle edition came out. It's very yes. kind of them. And thank you, thank you again to, uh, to, to Zach Rosenberg for coming on. We really appreciate it. We like having you on and uh, we'll definitely pirates on. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. You're, <laughs> 100%. you're, you're coming back. Uh, I, you know, I, it's not really even a, a point of discussion. Zach. <laughs> <laughs> I am in. I am so 100%. what are you doing for DCC day? <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk. I, I will make I, I will I will make damn sure that you guys get copies of uh, Devils in the Deep Blue Sea. Oh, love it! So thank you very much, everyone, for, uh, for tuning in and uh, be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Sacorum podcast. The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. <laughs>